Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning. My name is Tammy, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Tricon Residential's first quarter 2021 analyst conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. I'd now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Wojtek Novak, Managing Director of Capital Markets. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you, Tammy. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for joining us to discuss Tricon's first quarter results for the three months ended March 31st, 2021, which were shared in the news release distributed yesterday. I would like to remind you that our remarks and answers to your questions may contain forward-looking statements and information. This information is subject to risks and uncertainties that may cause actual events or results to differ materially. For more information, please refer to our most recent management's discussion and analysis and annual information form, which are available on CDAR and our company website. Our remarks also include references to non-GAAP financial measures, which are explained and reconciled in our MDNA. I would also like to remind everyone that all figures are being quoted in U.S. dollars, unless otherwise stated. Please note that this call is available by webcast on our website, and a replay will be accessible there following the call. Lastly, please note that during this call, we will be referring to a supplementary presentation that you can follow by joining our webcast, or you can access directly through our website. You can find both the webcast registration and the presentation in the investors section of triconresidential.com under news and events. With that, I will turn the call over to Gary Berman, President and CEO of Tricon. Thank you, Wojtek, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I hope everyone is having a safe and healthy start to 21. I'm excited to update you on our progress and what has been a very active few months for Tricon. But before we get into our quarterly overview, I want to first thank our dedicated team members who continue to go above and beyond for our residents. Our team delivered exceptional results despite having to navigate ongoing pandemic challenges, as well as extreme cold weather in Texas, Nashville, and Indianapolis which thankfully had minimal impact on our residents and our homes. Our frontline colleagues responded quickly, efficiently, and empathetically to these challenges while displaying tremendous teamwork. They continue to raise the bar when it comes to serving our residents, and I want to acknowledge their efforts. Let's start on slide two and talk about the key takeaways we want to emphasize for you today. First, our business is benefiting from long-term tailwinds that support our Sunbelt middle market rental strategy. Americans continue to flock to the Sun Belt in search of job growth, better weather, lower taxes, and affordable living options, and our rental homes address the housing needs of America's largest demographic, the millennials. Second, our core single-family rental business continues to deliver solid operating performance. With near-record occupancy levels and demand trends like we've never seen before, our single-family rental business is booming. Third, our U.S. multifamily business, which experienced some softness through the pandemic, is showing signs of sequential improvement. Fourth, we are on track for the most prolific year of fundraising in Tricon's 33-year history, 
with $1 billion of third-party equity capital commitments announced here today. These investment joint ventures provide a clear path of growth for Tricon for years to come. And finally, we have not only achieved, but also exceeded our deleveraging target and a year ahead of schedule at that. Let's now turn to slide three for a summary of our results. We reported core FFO per share of 13 cents this quarter, an increase of 30% compared to last year. Our net operating income grew a solid 14% year over year, while overhead and interest expenses remain relatively stable on the whole, creating strong bottom line growth. This quarter, we also delivered on several important strategic initiatives, including syndicating our U.S. multifamily portfolio, which raised $432 million in gross proceeds, forming a $1.4 billion Canadian dollar joint venture with CPP Investments, and launching the $1.5 billion Home Builder Direct joint venture. We did all of this while reducing our leverage significantly. Moving to slide four, in our single-family rental business, we continue to see exceptional growth from new and existing assets, as Tricon's proportionate share of NOI increased by 8.3%, and same-home NOI grew 4.1% compared to last year. Without the impact of the Texas storm, our same-home NOI growth would have been 80 basis points higher at 4.9%. We also achieved near-record same-home NOI margins 66.7%, driven by strong operating metrics. It is worth noting that our NOI margin would have been 67.1% if we exclude the impact of the Texas freeze, and 67.8% if we normalize for the higher bad debt and loss of ancillary income as a result of the pandemic. In U.S. multifamily rental, we are especially encouraged by strong sequential improvement in occupancy, turnover, and blended rent growth, which turned positive for the first time in four quarters. And finally, for sale housing delivered another strong quarter, distributing $12.9 million of cash to Tricon. Let's now turn to slide five to discuss the fundamental trends supporting our Sunbelt middle market strategy. We often talk about the great migration to the U.S. Sunbelt and have shared with you numerous statistics in recent quarters, such as data for moving truck companies that clearly show these migration trends accelerating during the pandemic. These are not just passing trends, but rather longer-term population shifts that have been in place for many years. The U.S. government recently published its 10-year census data, which shows that the South has been the fastest-growing region in the U.S. More specifically, the states where Tricon operates have experienced population growth of 11% on average over the past decade, which is 400 basis points above the national average. Clearly, it's not just the pandemic that is bringing people south. It's the attractive combination of warmer weather, lower taxes, strong job growth, and affordable living options that has been in place for some time, and we expect will continue to drive the Sun Belt migration. On slide six, we touch on another one of Tricon's fundamental long-term tailwinds, demographics. Two demographic shifts are behind the significant demand for single-family housing. The first is the giant millennial cohort, those born between 1980 and 2000 and numbering 72 million people who are entering their primary age of family formation over the next decade. With an average age of head of household of 38 in our SFR portfolio, millennials represent the primary source of demand for our single-family rental homes. The other major cohort is the baby boomers, who number 69 million people and are the second largest demographic. Boomers will remain a significant driver of demographic trends over the next 10 years and are increasingly choosing to age in place rather than move into a retirement home. By staying put, they increase the length of time Americans stay in their homes, limit the supply of single-family homes available for the younger generation, and drive up home pricing. 
Tricon Residential plays an important market role in addressing this demand supply imbalance by providing maintenance-free single-family rental housing at an affordable price point to millennials who've grown up in the sharing economy and often prioritize experiences over ownership. With such compelling long-term trends on our side, it should come as no surprise that we focused on single-family rental as our core growth strategy. On slide seven, we outline our asset mix, where you can see that single-family rental now represents 93% of our consolidated real estate assets and is expected to remain above 90% going forward. Residential development is expected to remain near 5% of assets and also includes built-to-rent communities that add to our SFR portfolio. Multifamily rental has now been reduced to 2% of assets as a result of the recent syndication and is expected to remain below 5% going forward. Let's now move to slide eight to expand on our SFR growth strategy and talk about our various acquisition channels. As you can see, we have a diversified acquisition strategy and have formed complementary joint ventures with third-party investors to help us scale faster across each of these channels. Our largest acquisition program is SFR JV1, where we acquire homes mainly through the MLS, as well as off-market channels and portfolio acquisitions. Over the past year, we've also expanded into development of built-to-rent communities under a joint venture with Arizona State Retirement System. And just a few days ago, we announced the formation of our Home Builder Direct JV, which focuses on buying new scattered homes and completed built-to-rent communities directly from home builders. This new venture is very synergistic with our legacy for sale housing business, as it leverages our longstanding relationships with home builders to gain access to newly built homes. On slide nine, you can see a summary of our various SFR joint ventures. The, key, the key takeaway here is that Home Builder Direct extends our runway to grow our single family rental portfolio beyond 30,000 homes. And as we fully deploy the capital in SFR JV1 and work towards closing a follow on JV2 this summer, you should expect us to expand our acquisition capacity significantly more. Turning to slide 10, we'd like to give you some more insight into build to rent communities, which are a meaningful growth opportunity for us. And when we say build to rent, we're referring to dedicated single family rental communities that we either acquire once completed or develop in partnership with home builders. Today, we own six built to rent communities with 474 homes in five markets. We expect to develop or acquire 10 communities this year and then add roughly 15 communities per year in 22 and beyond, either through acquisition or development. Once the communities are stabilized, it enables us to add 1,200 to 1,800 rental homes per year, in addition to over 3,000 homes being acquired each year through MLS and other channels. Built-to-rent communities are a win-win for both Tricon and our residents. For our residents, we can offer complete neighborhoods of affordably priced rental homes with a true sense of neighborhood and community. We can also custom design the homes to ensure a highly efficient use of space with light and bright floor plans that live larger than equivalent size homes. And on the Tricon side, we benefit from a maintenance honeymoon as the homes are newly constructed and come with a warranty coverage. That's expected to result in maintenance and repair costs that are 34% lower than our existing portfolio over a 10 year ownership period. Let's flip to slide 11, where we showcase four of our existing built to rent communities. What we love about the built-to-rent product is that it provides our residents with the best of all worlds, the privacy and perceived safety of living in a brand new single-family home, as well as the community atmosphere and amenities of multifamily. And the monthly rent of our existing communities is roughly $1 per square foot, which is 30 to 50% cheaper than similarly situated garden-style apartment rents on a per-foot basis. 
To round out the discussion of our growth strategies, I'd like to touch on Canadian multifamily on slide 12, where we recently announced a $1.4 billion Canadian dollar joint venture with CPP investments to nearly double our platform towards 7,000 units. While Canadian multifamily development is less than 5% of our balance sheet assets, it does represent an exciting source of upside for our shareholders, which could add close to $3 per share to our NAV in Canadian dollars as this portfolio is developed and stabilized over the coming years. Our first project with CPP Investments, depicted on slide 13, is located in Toronto's downtown east submarket and in close proximity to a future Ontario Line subway station. Situated on a fully entitled 1.8-acre site, the planned development consists of two towers totaling 870 rental suites and will feature a half-acre park and an extensive list of amenities to give our residents an unmatched downtown living experience. That concludes my opening remarks. I would now like to pass the presentation over to Sam to discuss her financial results. Thank you, Gary, and good morning, everyone. Overall, we had a great start to the year with all groups firing on all cylinders. It was a very busy quarter, and we are proud of what we've accomplished. From our fundraising efforts to our robust financial results, we've made significant progress on all of our key priorities outlined on slide 14. To refresh everyone, we introduced these five key priorities in 2019. These included growing our core FFO per share at a compounded annual rate of 10% over three years through 2022, raising approximately $1 billion of third-party capital over three years, growing book value per share by reinvesting our free cash flow into accretive growth opportunities, reducing our leverage, and improving our reporting. You can see our progress against these goals in the dashboard on slide 15. I am excited to report that we are on track to achieving or exceeding these goals, and in some cases doing so well ahead of schedule, all while in the middle of a global pandemic. This could not have been achieved without the amazing effort from our people, so I want to thank our team for the endless hours and dedication along this journey. Let's begin with our three-year FFO target. We had a great start to the year and achieved 13 cents of FFO per share. Assuming the current trend holds, we are confident that we can achieve our FFO target range of 52 to 57 cents in 2022, even with higher diluted share counts caused by our exchangeable preferred share offering last year and our deleveraging plans. Recall we set the target prior to even considering an 80% syndication of US MFR, but we are still confident we will achieve it. In terms of raising third-party capital, we achieved a major milestone by raising $1 billion of fee-bearing equity capital a year ahead of schedule. This includes our recent U.S. multifamily portfolio syndication, the single-family rental home builder direct joint venture, and our Canadian multifamily joint venture with CPP Investments. With more exciting opportunities in the pipeline, we are planning to continue with this momentum as the year progresses. We're focused on beating this target as we continue more third-party capital raising efforts. In terms of reducing our leverage to a target range of 50 to 55%, I am very happy to report that we have exceeded our target ahead of schedule and are now sitting at 49% net debt to assets. This translates to 46% net debt to assets on a proportionate basis. We remain focused on bringing our leverage lower over time while continuing to grow our business. Our final priority was to improve our reporting, which is substantially completed with our transition from investment entity accounting to consolidated accounting last year, as well as adopting REIT-like MD&A disclosures such as FFO and AFFO per share. 
With ESG as a company-wide priority, we issued our first ESG roadmap at the beginning of 2020. Turning to slide 16, I'm thrilled to announce that our first annual sustainability report will be released later this month. ESG has always been a part of Tricon's DNA in how we treat our people and how we treat our residents, and also how we operate our business. This report is a major step in our ESG journey and highlights our many sustainability initiatives we have committed to, as well as showcasing how we did this past year. Let's talk about the quarter. Let's move on to slide 17, where we provide highlights of our key metrics. First, our net income from continued operation grew 190% year-over-year to nearly $42 million. This included $66 million of NOI from our rental properties, representing a 14% year-over-year increase. We also had a $112 million fair value gain on rental properties in Q1 compared to $21 million in the prior year, reflecting significant home price appreciation in Tricon's markets. Second, our core FFO per share increased 30% to $0.13, cents, or $0.16 cents in Canadian dollars. Third, we reported AFFO of $0.10 cents per share. This translates to $0.13 cents Canadian and provides us with ample cushion to support our quarterly dividend of $0.07 cents Canadian per share, reflecting an AFFO payout ratio of 42%. Moving on to slide 18, which highlights the drivers that contributed to our FFO per share growth for the quarter. The year-over-year increase of $0.03 or 30% per share was due to strength across several aspects of our business. Our single-family rental portfolio, which makes up over 90% of our real estate assets, delivered 8% growth to Tricon's share of NOI. This was driven by a 9.1 increase in the number of homes, coupled with strong blended rent growth of 6.4% and occupancy of 96.3%. Our other businesses also contributed meaningfully this quarter. Residential development performed very well as demand for development lots in our for sale housing business exceeded our expectations during the pandemic. The business contributed $6.7 million to our FFO this quarter and generated $12.9 million of cash flow for Tricon, which includes performance fees. There was also a $1.1 million increase in private funds and advisory revenue, driven by an increase in development fees earned from our growing portfolio of Canadian residential developments. Likewise, we saw a year-over-year decrease in interest expense due to refinancing activities that have allowed us to benefit from a lower interest rate environment as well as lower balance outstanding on our corporate credit facility. This was largely offset by higher corporate overhead as we continue to grow our company, as well as higher-weighted average shares outstanding. Turning to our debt profile on slide 19, aside from the significant reduction in leverage that I spoke about earlier, you can see that we also have improved our liquidity position over the past year with $776 million of liquidity, including cash on hand and room on our corporate credit facility. A big part of the improvement was the U.S. multifamily portfolio syndication, which brought in $432 million of gross proceeds. We used that to repay $110 million credit facility outstanding in the portfolio, as well as debt outstanding on our corporate revolver. We expect to use most of the remaining cash to partially repay the term loans on our single-family rental portfolio, which mature next year, that can be prepaid this year. As we look ahead to 2022, as set from retiring a portion of the debt, we expect to finance the bulk of these maturities with new property debt, including securitization. 
We see a significant opportunity for interest expense savings in today's low interest environment, given that the blended rate on these maturities is 3%, whereas our latest securitization was done as at 1.83%. And so if we could save 100 basis points on our $1 billion of debt, we could translate that to $10 million of interest expense savings annually, or $0.03 cents per share, an incremental core FFO. On that note, let me pass the call over to Kevin Baltridge, Chief Operating Officer, to discuss the operational highlights for the quarter. Thank you, Sam, and good morning, everyone. As Gary noted, despite the pandemic and these difficult times, our team continues to rise to the occasion and amaze me with their dedication to our residents. The winter storms in Texas, Nashville, and Indianapolis were no different with our teams from across the country coming to each other's aid to prioritize the safety and well-being of our residents. We were fortunate that everyone remained safe and that the overall damage was minimal, and that despite these challenges, our operational performance has never been better. I've been in rental housing for over 25 years, and I've never seen metrics like this. We would dream of times like these. It's crazy. So with that, let's turn to slide 20 to review the performance of our or single-family rental business. We continue to benefit from strong demand trends which drove higher occupancy, rent growth, and resident retention, and resulted in same-home NOI growth of 4.1% year-over-year, and 4.9% excluding the impacted Texas storm. As we dive into the numbers, same-home revenue grew by 3.1%. This was driven by an occupancy increase of 80 basis points, and higher average rents, which resulted in rental revenue that was 5.1% higher than last year. The offsetting factor was higher bad debt expense of 2.1% of revenue compared to 0.8% the prior year. I'm pleased to report that as we move to the other side of this pandemic, our bad debt expense has declined by 70 basis points since the fourth quarter of 2020. We do believe that things will continue to improve as the effects of the pandemic subside, and we expect bad debt to normalize in the 2022. On the expense side, we saw a modest increase of 0.9% compared to last year, reflecting our focus on expense control. Contributing to this was a 7% reduction in repairs, maintenance, and turnover costs, reflecting an 80 basis point decrease in the turnover rate compared to last year to 20.6%. We attribute this to the propensity to stay in place as a, as a result of the COVID pandemic, as well as our focus on superior resident service. Property taxes grew by 3.7% year over year as our property values appreciated meaningfully. In addition, we saw a 10% increase in property insurance as premiums increased across the industry. Turning to slide 21, you can see that the exceptional demands and the trends in single-family rental homes have not slowed down. Occupancy remains at all-time highs and has nudged higher in April. Rent growth on new move-ins continue to accelerate and hit an all-time high also at 16.3% growth in April as we harvested the loss to lease that has built up over time with our low turnover rate. Meanwhile, rent growth and renewals is ticking upwards as strong demand for our homes allows us to push that metric up a bit more, but still being sensitive to the challenging economic environment impacting our residents. 
Now let's turn to slide 22 to discuss the U.S. multifamily rental business, which was consolidated in our results at 100% ownership throughout the quarter. Compared to last year, the Q1 variance is still negative as NOI decreased by 5%. If we delve into the components of NOI, revenues were down 1.3% relative to last year as a result of lower occupancy, lower average rent, and higher bad debt provisions, offset by higher revenue from new ancillary services. However, of late, concessions have decreased meaningfully. Blended rents are improving, which is encouraging to see. Our average concession in March was $63, down from $420 in July of last year. Expenses increased by 4.3% year-over-year, driven mostly by utilities, a slight increase in property taxes, and marketing expenses. Despite the decrease in NOI compared to last year, we actually saw an increase in FFO contribution from the multifamily portfolio of approximately $300,000 as we benefited from lower interest rates. I'm also encouraged that we're seeing that our NOI has stabilized on a sequential basis. This reflects significant improvement in operating metrics, including a 100 basis point increase in occupancy, lower turnover, and blended rent growth of positive 2.9%. It's the first time in four quarters that we've reported positive blended rent growth. We are optimistic that performance will continue to get better from here as local economies open up. We've seen these trends continue into April, which bodes well for strong performance through Q2 and into Q3. I want to thank our operations team for the contribution this quarter to both our single-family and multifamily rental performance, and I look forward to continuing at full speed ahead as the year progresses. Now I'll turn the call back over to Gary for closing remarks. Thank you, Kevin. I'd like to finish our presentation today with an overview of our private fundraising pipeline and future catalysts. Turning to slide 23. Private funds and advisory has always been a part of Tricon's core activity over its 33 years of history, and 2021 is gearing up to be the most prolific year of fundraising in our company's history. On this page, we highlight our existing investment vehicles, as well as our fundraising opportunities for 2021. While we're still early into the year, we've already raised $1 billion of third-party equity commitments year-to-date, including the U.S. Multifamily Syndication, Home Builder Direct, and the CPP Investments Joint Venture. It's been a busy year indeed, and we're not done yet. Still on the horizon is SFR JV2, a successor vehicle to SFR JV1, which we expect to be fully invested by mid-year. And secondly, we're working towards a growth vehicle to acquire garden-style multifamily apartment buildings in the U.S. Sunbelt to round out our syndicated portfolio. Overall, we expect the investment vehicles raised this year should contribute $10 million of annualized asset management fees to our top line. And so let's conclude on slide 24 with an overview of the catalysts that our team has delivered on and ones that you, our shareholders, can look forward to. First, we close the syndication of our U.S. multifamily portfolio in Q1, which ties to our second point here, that upon closing of this transaction, our leverage has been successfully reduced to 46% on a proportionate basis. In terms of growth, we've raised third-party capital across all residential strategies, which I outlined earlier, with more to come. Our own balance sheet investments will remain focused on single-family rental, which will account for over 90% of our real estate assets going forward. Our acquisition program is already back to pre-pandemic levels, but will be accelerated further as we layer on Home Builder Direct and SFR JV2 later in the year. 
Meanwhile, our legacy for sale housing assets remain a very small part of our business, but are quietly producing significant cash. We expect to generate over $300 million in the next five to seven years, which can be used for deleveraging and to reallocate to our rental housing business. And lastly, north of the border, we continue to construct, develop, and stabilize our Canadian multifamily development properties that we think can generate close to $3 per share of value on top of the existing IFRS NAV as we quietly incubate a best-in-class multifamily portfolio. I'm thankful to our team for all the progress we made so far this year. We are very fortunate to emerge from this pandemic in such a strong position and to be able to hit the ground running in 2021 with so much momentum. That concludes our prepared remarks. I will pass the call back to Tammy to take questions. With Sam, Kevin and I will also be joined by Jonathan Ellenswag, Andy Carmody and Andrew Joyner to answer questions. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, press star then the number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of Matt Logan with RBC Capital Markets. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning, Matt. Given the strength in your SFR business in February, March, and April, how should we be thinking about the growth algorithm going forward? Is this now low to mid-teens rent growth with 20% turnover and rent increases of 4 to 6% for sitting tenants? Well, let's take each let's take each component. I mean, first of all, we're going to continue to have an occupancy bias. So if you notice our occupancy has been ticking up a little bit uh, over 97.5%, and, uh, and, and we're very comfortable operating in that 97% range uh, through this year. So that's something I think we certainly learned uh, by being in the pandemic that we think it makes sense to operate at a higher level. Uh, in the past, we would have pushed rents uh, significantly higher, let's say if we were at 95 or 96%. So we will continue to have an occupancy bias. I think on rent growth, um, again, we're going to self-govern on renewals. So those renewals are ticking up, uh, but we do have an internal cap, and we will be mindful of that. So I think with that, those, the, the self-governing on renewals, Matt, um, I think we'll be able to hit blended rent growth of, of approximately 6%, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't guide any higher than that. I mean, we're seeing unbelievable releasing spreads. I mean, Kevin talked about 16% in April. That's clearly not sustainable. So don't want, we don't want you to get focused on 16%. But I think, you know, if we can do 6%, that would be outstanding, even though April uh, we're at 8%, which is just really mind-blowing. We've never seen metrics like this. The, the, as I said before, the business is absolutely booming. And then I think on turnover, uh, I, I think turnover will remain, and, and maybe Kevin can chime in too, but I think turnover will remain uh, definitely lower all year, but it's probably a little bit art artificially low. Um, and as we get out of the pandemic, um, that, that will move up a little higher, but probably should stay below where we were in 2019. And, and look, if turnover does take up a little bit, obviously that hurts our R&M on the margin, but it also allows us to capture the loss to lease. So um, it's probably kiff-kiff. Kevin, anything you want to add? I think you said it perfectly. The only thing I would add is as people start moving out, maybe because of the pandemic getting behind us, we'll also see our collections improve. And while turnover may go up a little bit, we'll also see um, our collections improve and will offset each other. And when you think about the type of tenants that you're attracting you know, today versus, say, a year or two ago, 
like has there been any change and do you think the demand is reflective of kind of pent up demand through the pandemic or are we starting to see more structural changes in people moving uh, from north to south or from kind of urban to suburban as the vaccine rollout progresses? Kevin, I'll let you start and then I'll continue. Yeah, I'd say, you know, we have stayed very disciplined from the very beginning with our underwriting. And we're, um, you know, right now we still have, I'd say, our household income to rents are in the 22%, 23%. And, and we've really kind of stuck to, to our knitting and made sure that we were being disciplined. And, um, and during the middle of the pandemic, we actually also were asking right before somebody moved in, we then did another check to make sure they still had a job. And so we have found that, you know, the resident profile that, that has, you know, been with us over, throughout the pandemic and even, you know, the people that we're um, approving now, you know, all have jobs, all have, you know, very good qualifications. Um, so it's, it's something we continue to, um, to work on and, and believe that, you know, our, our bad debt's going to continue to improve. Before the pandemic, we were at 0.8%. And we're confident we'll get back there, um, you know, into 2022. And, and, I'll, and I'm, I'm going to talk more about the migration trends, Matt. But I think just on the bad debt, I mean, we really view the bad debt, uh, which is obviously elevated right now, but is not not a big factor in driving our results. But we just view it as a, as a, a cost of doing business. It's really an artificially high number in the pandemic because we are not evicting generally for non-payment of rent. There is significant demand, as you know, for our product. So this. So the higher bad, bad debt, just so you're aware, is, is not an indication of, of really of the economy. It's just more of our ESG approach and being sensitive during this time and trying to keep people in the homes and work with them. Um, that that's the only reason that the bad debt is, is elevated. But as Kevin said, we believe um, that it'll start normalizing into 22. On the migration, look, the, the demand for this business is incredibly strong going into the pandemic. And we really view the pandemic as an accelerant of a lot of the trends that were taking place before. Right, so this great migration that we've talked about was there. It's just continuing um, for, for many factors. But what the pandemic layered on top of that was this feeling of, you know, this, this want for de-urbanization and de-densification, prioritization of safety, and then obviously the work-from-home trends. And, and we think those are going to continue. Uh, it's not to say by any means that we think office is dead. We're, we're investing in our own office space. We believe in building culture. But on the margin, we think more and more people will be working from home, there will be more flexible work arrangements, and all of that favors uh, the Sun Belt uh, because it's, if you're going to live anywhere, you, 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 sh you know, it makes sense to live in a place where it costs less, you have lower taxes and better weather. So we think we're set up really well. Um, we don't think this is, you know, these are short-term or passing trends, as we said in our prepared remarks. This very much could be uh, a, a decade of, of, of really strong growth. We think these tailwinds are going to be with us for a long, long time, and we're incredibly well set up. Completely agree, and I appreciate the color. Maybe one last one from me. Just in terms of your 2022 FFO guidance, can you remind us of the key assumptions in terms of organic growth, third-party capital, and SFR acquisitions? Yeah, so we assumed on SFR acquisitions that we would complete uh, JV1 and acquire roughly 800 homes per quarter. Um, we, we assumed um, uh, same-store NOI growth in SFR 4 to 5%. Um, we're right on track for that. Uh, we assumed about 3% for multifamily. Obviously, we're behind there, but it's become a very small part of the portfolio. 
but I would say we're going to catch up significantly. It wouldn't surprise me at some point at the end of the year if the same store growth in multifamily is higher than SFR because we're seeing a really big resurgence there and really strong trends uh, into the stronger leasing season. And then on the third-party capital, we assumed that we'd raise a billion of, of equity, of fee-bearing equity, and we've already done that. So, so you know, we're, we feel very confident about hitting the 52 to 57 cents range. But, you know, please keep in mind, as was Sam mentioned, when we set those targets, we didn't anticipate deleveraging as fast as we have, and we're already below our target, significantly below the target. We also didn't anticipate uh, syndicating an 80% interest of the U.S. multifamily portfolio. I think at that time it was only about 50%, and that's short-term dilutive, um, something obviously you need to take into account certainly next quarter, but will we'll be long-term neutral. And then also the, um, the uh, Blackstone preferred stock deal, obviously we didn't take into account. So all of those things, you know, and, and then the last thing I would say is, and as you know, at one point we were erroneously including uh, multifamily Canadian investment income into that FFO calculation, which we shouldn't have been doing. And so we, we actually set that 52 to 57 target um, with any, without any of those factors. And so the fact that we still think we can hit it just shows how strong we're growing. I appreciate the color, Gary. Thank you. I'll turn the call back. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Dean Wilkinson with CIBC. Hi, Dean. Good, good morning, everybody. Um, just a couple of quick ones for with Sam. One's tax, one's accounting. Um, with Sam, have you have you been able to sort of dissect that proposed tax deductibility app, federal budget? and how that could impact you guys, and are there ways to, to deal with that if you do bump up against those 40 and 30% limits? Um, um, we, we have not fully dissected that. We're still waiting for more uh, information to come out, more specific information. Uh, but uh, just uh, we have a strategy in place already from a tax perspective, both in Canada and the U.S., uh, whereby uh, we have more we shift expenses between countries, and we have the ability to uh, look at uh, look at tax uh, uh, achievable areas, both in Canada and the U.S. So we have not looked at it in detail yet, but we have strategies in place to account for it if it does come through. Okay, uh, would you be up against those limits right now, based upon where your current leverage is? Uh, I haven't done the math. No, we're not. Okay, so it's probably a moot point. Um, and then the second question is just uh, j just a quick accounting one. The 2020 FFO was recast to make comparable. Will we see a similar recasting in Q2, Q3, and Q4 as, as you roll those forward, or do you have those numbers already? No, we will not see. Uh, you will not see a similar similar recasting. One of the items that we fixed uh, was the, the Canadian multifamily. In Q1 of 2020, we included that in our FFO, and then we okay. stripped it out. So Canadian development was stripped out, and we, didn't, we never took any further uh, FFO gains on that in Q2, Q3, and Q4. So that's the only okay, thing. So those, perfect. Those will be a pure comp. Okay, that's it. I will hand it back for some others to ask questions. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Lauren Kalmar with TD Securities. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, on uh, the SFR acquisition pace, I think you guys said with the Home Builder Direct now you'll be up to about a thousand, and, and you expect that to increase further with the JV2. How, uh, how do you see the quarterly acquisitions trending um, moving ahead? 
trending up. That's the that's the short answer. <laughs> We're uh, yeah, that, that's the that's the, the guidance we can give you. Know trending up. Look, we've been um, we've been doing 800 a quarter uh, through SFR JV1, and now that we layer Home Builder Direct on top, uh, you know we could probably go to 1200. And then if we're able to enhance our buy box and then raise uh, JV2, SFR JV2, I think as a long-term stretch goal, we could probably get to 1500 per quarter. So almost a doubling of kind of where we've been over time, not immediately, uh, but that, that would be the longer-term goal. Um, so we're super excited. You know, we have an opportunity with these fundraisers to significantly ramp up, uh, increase our scale, become more and more efficient. Um, so this is a you know a really exciting story of growth and efficiency at the same time. Obviously, uh, we'll be generating more uh, you know third-party fee income as well, uh, which will come to play. The only other thing I would add, Lauren, is that on Home Builder Direct, it will be somewhat cyclical, right? It, it's it does depend on us uh, entering into contracts with builders. Um, it will ebb and flow a little bit. Um, you know, there'll be times where we be more and more acquisitive and others less, depending on the builder's appetite. And in some cases, even though we put uh, homes under contract, they might not actually close for many months or even until the next year. And we only record the, uh, the purchase or acquisition when it does close. So just be mindful of that. But over time, though, I mean, I think if we look at all the programs together, SFR JV1, eventually JV2, Home Builder Direct, and the joint venture with Arizona State, you're going to see significantly higher acquisitions going forward. Okay, um, and then maybe just switching gears. Uh, one of the things we've been hearing, I think, for a little bit now is the rise in construction costs. Um, you know, has, it didn't look like the costs uh, or expected costs really increased much quarter over quarter. But how do you see those sort of trending? And, and do you think the that demand and the market rents will be able to keep up to let you guys get your desired yields? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, the answer to your second part of your question is is absolutely. We are seeing, um, you know, home prices rent growth uh, stay, stay on pace and, and, and in some cases exceed cost increases. But maybe, you know, to answer your first part of the question, I'll turn it over to Andy Carmody, um, who oversees our built to rent program to give you a little bit more color on, on inputs and home building costs. Sure. Uh, Lauren, this is Andy. Um, you know, on the cost side, we're certainly seeing a spike in construction costs right now. And, and through the first part of this year, uh, costs in aggregate have risen about 10%. With certain commodities, we've all heard and read about lumber, you know, up considerably more. And that's a pretty aggressive rise on the cost side, construction uh, cost side in, in such a short period of time. And probably a, a little more importantly, um, as, as many of you know, land is a necessary component for new uh, construction and, and development. And the land market for near-term availability is really tight right now. Land, land prices have gone up between 10 to 40 percent uh, in some prime locations. So this definitely putting... Uh, pressure on our development activities, but as Gary mentioned, um, you know, so far we're seeing the, the ability to offset that with better rents and, and on the for sale side with better home prices. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that's going to hold up and we'll probably put a little more pressure on our growth uh, in the development side and, uh, you know, may temper the pace here until the market equalizes a little bit from a construction cost standpoint. Okay. Uh, and maybe in the same vein, what about on the uh, Canadian multifamily front? Yeah, on the Canadian, it's the same. I mean, it's a similar trend in Canadian multifamily where we're seeing higher higher input costs. Uh, it, you know, even during the pandemic, I mean, residential construction or construction, as you know, has largely been ongoing. It's been considered to be an essential service. So there's been no, you know, uh, abatement in, in construction. It's it's continued. We're seeing higher commodity prices. 
um, you know, less labor in many cases. So all of that, you know, continues to put pressure uh, on construction uh, and, and the cost. But it hasn't done it to an extent where we aren't able to hit, you know, our untrended, untrended development yield. So to give you a sense, you know, the, the project we, we, we just um, closed on, very exciting project in downtown East, um, we underwrote that to a mid 4.5% cap rate uh, or development yield that's untrended based on today's costs and today's rents, right? So we think that's a really, you know, attractive yield given where underlying financing rates are and, and, and cap rates. And, and, and would you like to, Andrew, would you like to add to that? Yeah. Sure, yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, no, Lawrence, it's, it's a fair question. And I think, you know, the ultimate big difference, too, between Canada and the U.S. is, you know, uh, timber has been the headline, you know, inflationary item. And, and you know, we have very little wood in, in what we build uh, up here in Canada. So um, there's no question there's some, some upward pressure. But, um, you know, we've been trying to be thoughtful and deliberate, too, about leveraging our scale, bulk contracts, including caps in, in our in our contracts and and um, you know we have seen land you know move in our direction a little bit and so that's helped us maintain our yields as well Quite okay, great. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> yeah thank you your next question comes from the line of mark rothschild with canaccord thanks and good morning everyone uh Hi, mark. a lot of my a lot of my questions have been answered already and Gary, you definitely spoke about this earlier, the, the target range of 52 to 57 cents and all that's happened since then that wasn't necessarily in that original target. Um, going forward with all this capital that's raised and the accelerating pace of acquisitions, are, are you more focused on pushing that number higher versus strengthening the balance sheet more and reducing leverage, or w would either one be the, a clearer focus? We're trying to strike the balance because, I mean, look, we could, I mean, on an FFO for sure basis, I mean, we could, I mean, we could crush it if we weren't focused on the balance sheet. Um, but we know it's important for our shareholders to maintain our discipline on the balance sheet and the debt. And so now that we've got, you know, our leverage down below 50% uh, debt to assets, we want to, we want to keep it there. And so that ultimately becomes the anchor. And um, and so therefore, um, you know, it, we have to keep that in mind as we're as we're targeting the growth. But I think what, what I would say is we're we're really fortunate. It, it's very difficult for most real estate companies, as you know, Mark, to both grow, uh, and you can see that our FFO per share year over year grew 30 percent, and at the same time drop our leverage by about a thousand basis points. I mean, that's almost unheard of. Right, and it just goes to speak to it speaks to how strong the fundamentals are for our rental business, particularly our single-family rental business right now, and for sale housing, which is also booming. Um, we've just almost never seen conditions like this, and we're taking advantage of it, right, to get the leverage lower and then to drive growth. But um, I think once we get through, you know, this is a this is a period. It, it's always a little bit painful when you delever, as you know, and we're going through that right now, but still putting you know putting posting very good FFO numbers. Once we grow, get through that, it's possible that our effort for per share growth could be much stronger. Okay, great. Thanks. That's all for me. Your next question comes from the line of Chihan Tukan with Stiefel. Hey, good morning, everyone. Just a couple of quick questions from me. Um, just with respect to the rent growth, obviously 16% plus is, is very strong and not sustainable long-term, but Gary and team, maybe can you talk about which areas you're seeing geographically the best kind of strength, demand fundamentals, and 
Second part to that question, um, as you know, vaccine rollouts have proliferated through the U.S., has there been any um, difference at all between areas that are, you know, more along the path of vaccination versus areas that are less along the path or um, just any general comments on, on the demographics that would be right? Yeah, I mean, I'll, let, I'll take the first part of the question, uh, the easy part, and then I'll pass the uh, the more difficult part on to John to give his perspective on uh, on the vaccine rollout since he's in the U.S. Um, so, look, I mean, overall on the releasing spreads, uh, I mean, we did 16% in April. There, there, the range is about 10% to 20%, depending on the market, right? So, no matter, even in the lower markets, which tend to be the Texan markets like San Antonio or Houston, we're still seeing unbelievable demand. The strongest markets actually are our biggest markets like Phoenix, Atlanta, Charlotte. Um, those markets are just, just absolutely booming. So, you know, across the board, it's, 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 we're just in such a, a fortunate position. There's so much demand for this rental housing, but it's pretty strong everywhere uh, with, with certain markets even, even stronger. John, you want to talk about um, a, a, a little bit more? Are we seeing any differences uh, depending on um, approach to, to, the, to the pandemic and, and, and COVID? Sure, and, and thanks for the question. Um, and we, you know, look, with regard to the vaccine rollout, um, we're, see, we're starting to see, you know, real strength almost across our entire portfolio, and that's because, you know, we're in, you know, largely similar markets across the Sun Belt. Um, you know, politically, there may be some differences, but we are starting to see the U.S. push the vaccine through, you know, essentially all of our markets. Um, vaccination rates might vary a little bit, but those are really due to personal preference. I was preferences, I would say, and it's not changing um, people's demand or leasing habits. So whether you're in you know, Texas or California, uh, you're still seeing strong, um, strong demand, um, regardless of uh, politics, let's say. Um, and again, the vaccine, you know, is, you know, becoming quite readily available or is readily available here. And, and you know, you're getting to points in many of our markets where there's more vaccines um, available than there are demand. I, I will say, I mean, Shan, I will say, just sitting up here in Toronto, that it's without question that the fact that the U.S. has been able to roll out that vaccine much faster uh, than we have up in Canada, and that certainly in the Sun Belt, they've taken a more you know pro-business approach has made a huge difference, uh, and you can see that in the numbers between what we're doing in rental housing across the entire Sun Belt versus Toronto, let's say, which is relatively weak. So it, you know, there's, it's it's striking how, how 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 different they are at this point in time. It's almost like you're on a different planet, um, but certainly the pro-business approach and getting those vaccines out quickly. It's made a very big difference, and it's benefiting us tremendously. Appreciate the color there, and I think everyone on the call would agree. We can only hope that we can catch up to our uh, U.S. counterparts for rollout. But uh, maybe just one last question for me with respect to capex. You know, there were, with the, and the impact of the the Texas uh, storms on on. NOI and stuff like that. Was there any impact on um, the capex side of things? Was it? a little bit lower than it really should have been, and can we expect to see that uh, trend higher for some catch-up uh, over the next couple of quarters? Thanks. Well, so, look, I mean, the, the Texas storm was, was a big event. I mean, a lot of, a lot of our, our team on the ground and, and, and people in place described it in some cases as being worse than a hurricane. It was a big event. It affected a lot of our homes, you know, more than 600 single-family rental homes, about 10 multifamily properties. But on the whole, the damage was light. And, um, you know, we're very fortunate that our, obviously our, our, our residents and, and our team are safe. 
Um, so at the end of the day, you, you know, between single family and multifamily, Chihan, it, the, the entire damage is about $5 million. About 80% of that is going to be covered by insurance or out of pocket, it's only about a million dollars. And we expense some of that in uh, Q1. We'll expense a little bit more probably in Q2, but otherwise it's, it's really de minimis. It's not going to have a big impact on our CapEx um, or, or, or anything, you know, above the line in, in ex expense either way. So I think we've been, we've been very fortunate there. Um, I think the other thing, you know, you might notice when you look at our results, if you look at our cost to maintain, um, which covers, you know, all the costs of, of maintaining a home, the cash cost, those are lower uh, meaningfully year over year. Uh, and that, I think, speaks partly to the lower turnover uh, that Kevin's talked about, but also we just keep on getting more and more efficient of, of the way we, you know, maintain and, and manage the CapEx program in our, in our rental business. So that, that's a really, you know, positive trend for us, and it's able to offset the, you know, the uncontrollable expenses of higher property taxes and insurance. Thank you very much. That's uh, it for me. Thank you. Again, if you would like to ask a question, press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from the line of Tyle Woolley with National Bank Financial. Hi, good morning. Hi, Tal. Um, just wanted to talk about the Canadian multifamily business uh, for a bit. Um, you know, just looking at your development schedule, you've got a lot in the hopper construction-wise. What should we be thinking about for your share of the development spend over the next few years? In terms of the over the next few years? Sam, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, one thing, one thing to note is we've, a lot of the projects that are under development or active construction today, we have purchased them a few years ago, um, and uh, we have put in construction loans, and we put in the equity component already. So we're hitting most of them, we're hitting construction loans, so there's very little cash requirement from Tricon's portion going forward. Uh, a lot of it is going to be in construction loan financing uh, that is non-recourse to Tricon. Okay. There, Cal, one thing I'll add: there, there will be obviously some incremental spend on new projects, like the like the project we just announced in in downtown, uh, you know, East. There will be an incremental spend there, uh, and we are planning to add, you know, maybe a, a project or two per year. Uh, so that that does need to get taken in, into account. But um, the the good news is that because with our venture with CPP, we're only thirty percent of the equity. It, it's really not a large drain on cash. Right. It, yeah. it's, this is not a big, this is not a big cash user for us, um, and you know we're able to scale this this business very very efficiently. Yeah, I think I was trying to get a sense of what the what the debt draw would be like those two as well. Just like I, I like what's the like how the remaining unfunded amounts like are getting how we should think about how much will we get spent each year. That's all. Yeah, if, if you if you want a guesstimate number, it'll be around let's assume 50 a year uh, of expenditures going forward, uh, and that covers everything from all the projects and all of our equity commitments. So if you want to map out something, 50 million is a good number to use going forward of actual cash. That includes all the new projects and our projected two two projects that we're looking to buy as well. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, just to, you were talking about accelerating the single family rental. Uh, purchase rate, um, you know, and I guess with multiple joint ventures and also your own account uh, involved too, like when we think about like, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 
uh, units a, a quarter, like how many fall into which, how many should we expect to fall into which bucket? Okay, so um, on the on the traditional um, acquisition of you know buying from MLS or I buyers or small portfolios, we're currently doing about eight hundred per quarter, right? And then um, home builder direct, like I said before in, in in answering another question, it is cyclical. It will ebb and flow. You can think of it as being lumpy, but it's possible that moves up to about four hundred on top, right? It won't be four hundred every quarter. Could be 100. We could have another quarter where you have much more. It's going to move around. But if you think about it over time, it might be about 400. So you've got 800 plus 400. That's 1,200. And then um, if we're able to open up the JV uh, buy box in JV2, meaning that we can buy at slightly lower cap rates, buying more markets, uh, which would have lower cap rates, then it's possible we could add another, you know, few hundred on top of that. So like I said, the stretch goal could be going from 800 today to about 1,500. Okay, that's great. And then, obviously, like you guys have achieved a lot of the, you know, a lot of the targets you've laid out for yourselves, or you're on your way to achieving most of those agenda items you've laid out over the last couple of years. And you know, in the past, Trigon's been, you know, very comfortable shifting its asset mix to chase interesting opportunities, um, and everything's running well right now. I'm just wondering, you know, should investors expect, or are you contemplating any other shifts in asset mix going forward right now? No. Short answer to that is no. Um, we, we found our groove. Uh, it took a long time to get to this point. Uh, we were always playing chess, always playing a couple steps ahead to get to this point where we are today. It, you know, at times it was a little bit messy, uh, doing everything in the openness of the public markets to kind of shift the mix and, sh and shift the, obviously transform the business to, to be rental housing. But we've achieved what we set out to do. Um, and, and, and the asset mix we showed you is, is a very good, um, gives you a very good template of what we're looking to do going forward. We absolutely still believe in the synergies we could obtain between single family and multifamily rental. Uh, and we're excited to take over the, you know, uh, get ready to take over that multifamily rental portfolio later in the year. Um, but at the end of the day, the vast majority of growth is going to be on single family rental. And that's what, uh, that's what our shareholders and investors should, should expect. And, and the reason for that is simply we're just seeing, you know, you know, better, you, you know, better metrics, right, um, in, 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 in almost all respects. And, uh, you know, we're also able to, uh, when, we, when we do third-party capital raising, we're also able to get better terms. So we're very much focused on single-family rental, and that's what investors should expect going forward. Okay, that's great. Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks. There are no further questions at this time. I'll turn the call back over to Gary Berman, President and CEO of Tricon Residential. Thank you, Tammy. I would like to thank all of you on this call for your participation. We look forward to speaking with you again in June at our annual meeting and in August to discuss our Q2 results. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.